This is the BBC. Hi, I know you're expecting money box, but while they're away for August, you've got us looking after you. He's Steve Bougea, and I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this is Economics with Subtitles. We're here to explain the basics, so that you can make up your own mind when you watch the news, read the paper, or get into a heated debate with your friends. And we hope you like it. Hello and welcome to Economics with Subtitles. Your everyday guide to economics and why you should care. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith and I make podcasts about money and stuff. And I'm Steve Bougea, a stand-up comedian with a degree in economics. And this is the first time I've put it to use. What did you get? Doesn't matter. I am adequately qualified to present a show which breaks down the jargon and lifts the lid on economics' slimy underbelly. Today on Economics with Subtitles, we're looking at interest rates. What are they, who sets them, and why people will inevitably buy tickets to see Fast and Furious 14. Don't worry, that will make sense at the end. I'm going to start us off with a story about some very unusual post. Picture this. It's a sleepy Wednesday at the US Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C., basically the American version of the Bank of England, and you're in the mailroom. It's the usual stuff. Bills, takeaway menus and coffins full of car keys. Whoa, did they make someone sign for that? That's a horrible thing to have to unpack. (laughs) Yeah, it's the early 1980s and coffins full of car keys are arriving at the Federal Reserve. But what does that have to do with interest rates? Well, it's all about Paul Volcker. He was the Fed's head honcho at the time and he made some pretty controversial decisions. I've been speaking to Professor Bill Silber from New York University's Stern School of Business, who's written a biography of Paul Volcker to find out more. People protested because the high interest rates made it difficult for them to borrow money to buy what they thought they needed, like a new car, like a new home. So when they couldn't afford 15% interest in car loans, and by the way, today they're like 2%, but 15% car loans, the car dealers sent in keys of the unsold cars. So the coffins with car keys were a creative form of protest about the high interest rates by people whose livelihoods were being threatened. There were some traditional street protests too, and also other imaginative messages in the post. Planks of wood by home builders. When you buy a home, you have to take out a mortgage. When mortgage rates hit 15%, nobody was buying the new homes that they had already built. So they took some of the two-by-fours that they used to build the homes, sawed them down, and sent them in the mail, just attached a stamp to the two-by-four and just sent it in the mail. (laughs) U.S. mails will, you know, they'll deliver anything if it has a stamp on it. (laughs) So the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, had a stack of two-by-fours in his office. He apparently ended up with 7,000 of them, all because of the interest rates that he, as the person in charge of the U.S.'s central bank, was setting. Paul Volcker raised interest rates to unprecedented levels 20% on commercial bank loans, levels which hurt, which made people think twice about spending. And that was the objective. And that's why people protested. They said, we don't want high interest rates. Find another way to reduce inflation. The problem was there is no other way. America suffered from what we call double-digit inflation, inflation above 10%. And this was unprecedented for peacetime. Just to take things back to basics, why was it that 
Volcker had this idea of setting interest rates so high. How did that tie into what was happening with inflation? Inflation is the product of too much money chasing too few goods. People have a lot of money. There's not enough goods that are being produced. And what happens is people start to push up prices. They don't do it on purpose, but businesses see that people are buying things and things are flying off the shelves. Cars are being driven out of the dealer so they can raise prices. And that's what they do. And the only way to get inflation under control is to reduce that incentive to spend, to make people think Ah. not once, not twice, but maybe three times of buying a new car, of buying a new home. And the only way the Federal Reserve can do that is by raising interest rates, by raising the cost of borrowing money. And that reduction in the demand for things, cars, houses, a fancy meal at a restaurant will in fact take the pressure off prices and will force businessmen not to increase prices because otherwise they won't get their goods sold. I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of different groups of people affected by this. Did the protests of all those people result in any change in policy or did Volcker kind of steam ahead notwithstanding? Well, the Federal Reserve and Paul Volcker refused to lower rates until it would wring the inflation out of the economy. And of course, Congress started screaming and yelling, you know, my constituents are angry and they can't buy a new car. But secretly, they said, look, we're going to blame it on the Federal Reserve. They're going to take the heat for higher interest rates. And we know that deep down, the public is ready for a real battle. So they let the Federal Reserve do what it had to do. So after all the screaming and yelling, how did the dust settle? What was the long-term effect um, of the high interest rates? Well, the long-term effect was a remarkable reduction in the rate of inflation from 12% a year in 1979 all the way down to about 4 or 5% four years later. So he got the job done, but it was at a high cost for many. People who made or sold cars or houses, among many others, lost their jobs and their businesses. Tensions were running high. There's even a photo from one of the protests of an effigy of Paul Volcker being hanged. Nowadays, he's better known for the Volcker rule, which is something he came up with after the 2008 financial crisis to try and stop banks behaving in such a risky way. And there's also this. Steve, I know that you've got an encyclopedic knowledge of 90s girl groups, but do you recognise this band? Uh, It's not Girls Aloud, so no, I'm out. (laughs) It is not Girls Aloud. That's a group from Portland in the US called Volcker. Ah. Yeah, their lead singer used to work in politics where he was involved in discussions about the Volcker rule. Uh, And we got in touch and he told us that he chose the name because, and I quote, 
At first glance, it sounds tough and German and maybe a little scary, when in fact, it's actually a 90-year-old economist. What do you reckon? Good band name? I think that's a great way of choosing band names. From now on, all band names should be named after economists. Okay, I'm on Stiglitz. It. That's a good name for a band. That is it? a great name for a band. Welcome to the stage, Stiglitz. <laughs> and just to prove that here on Economics with Subtitles, we take you to places no one else will, even Bill Silber, who wrote Paul Volcker's biography, hadn't heard of them. A, a rock band. Yeah, a rock band. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, I'll do one better for you. <laughs> yeah? There was a horse <laughs> named Volker. Brady, who used to be the Secretary of the Treasury, owned a horse, and he asked Paul Volker, could he name the horse Volker? Wow. And Volker asked him, which end? <laughs> and he said, the whole horse. He said, fine. <laughs> that is better. You, you, you've won. This Volker guy's a real joker, isn't he? Mate, Can I just say that Bill guy has got the most soothing voice I've I mean, ever heard in my I entire li- life. Literally, I just couldn't. I couldn't focus. I want him to read me a bedtime story. Yeah, I want him to read me Harry Potter every night. I think <laughs> that'd be so nice. That would be really good. Okay, so Rebecca McDonald is an economist from the University of Birmingham and is here to help us make sense of all of this. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Nice to have you. Uh, Okay, so first up, Bill was talking about the US Federal Reserve, which is their central bank. What is the role of central banks when it comes to interest rates? So the big idea is, I think we got from what Bill was talking about, is that central banks use their policies, including interest rates, to try and balance economic activity and inflation. You can use the interest rate to try and affect the amount of demand in the economy, affect how much people want to buy, And that can reduce inflation. Okay, right, Rebecca, let's go back to the beginning and ask the real basic question, what are interest rates actually for? Okay, so let's go even further back and say, what is interest? How's that? So Mm. interest is actually just the money that you pay for borrowing money for a period of time. So the interest rate then is the price of borrowing money. So when we think about the interest that we pay on loans... We've got to, first of all, realise that the lenders, the people that are lending us money, maybe banks, they're actually profit-making businesses. And they need to make more on the loans that they give than they have to pay out on the deposits that they hold. And that's why we see this spread between borrowing and lending rates. Okay, And the reason that we actually have to pay interest rates when we borrow is, firstly, it's a fee for borrowing at all. Okay, So the bank needs to cover the costs that it has. It's also because we're paying a fee that covers inflation. So we need to pay some interest to cover that inflation cost for the bank. But there's also a fee for risk. And this risk is basically the risk that loans are not going to be repaid. So who is actually making the decision about what the interest rate I have to pay is? Is it my bank or is it the central bank that we've talked about? So, yeah, it can seem quite tricky to see the link between what the central bank is doing and what the interest rates are that you get offered on your risky business ideas or your personal borrowing. The banks do set the rate you receive for all the reasons that we talked about, including the risk and inflation, but also because we talked about them having to cover their costs. And part of their costs is related to the central bank's interest rate. If the central bank rate goes up, their costs of borrowing from other banks and from the central bank will also go up. And that's where the central bank interest rate kind of feeds into the commercial rates that we see. And that's also why typically when the central bank rate goes up and down, the commercial rates will follow. All right, so let's have a look at how rates set by our central bank, that's the Bank of England, have changed over recent years. So it's time for one of our ill-fated attempts to create a new quiz show format. Uh, Are you ready, Steve? 
I am so ready. I'm calling this an interesting year. Nice. Yeah, you like it. Did you consider calling it interest mates? Oh, my colleagues at best. Okay, right. So, (laughs) first up is a year when the Bank of England put its lending rate up to a whacking 15%. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This evening, the Quebec Minister for Olympic Construction, Mr Victor Goldblum, held a news conference in Montreal. He was supposed to give a more or less final assessment of whether the stadium and facilities in the city would be ready in time for the Olympic Games. Mr Thorpe found himself still leading only 13 MPs. And despite the good humour, moves were already afoot, which would lead to his resignation as leader. When it came in the wake of the Scott allegations, Mr Thorpe and his wife headed for home in Devon. Steve, name that interesting year. Well, it's ABBA. Yeah. It was brilliant. (laughs) That was ABBA. Um, This is going to be... I think that's the... 70s. Mm. So I'm going to say 1970. Oh, was it Olympic year? Did I hear that? Maybe 1978. So close. It was 1976. Oh, that was close. That was close. Well done. I'll give you half a point. Thank you. Next up, this is a year where the Bank of England changed the base rate to 0.5%. I'm hoping somehow that you know. Tonight, two people who returned to Scotland from Mexico last week have swine flu. And the wait is over for Doctor Who fans as Matt Smith emerges as the new incarnation of the Time Lord. Right, Steve. JLS. Name... <laughs> I didn't say That's the not thing. the quiz, is it? No, I didn't say I the wish thing. it was the quiz. Name that interesting year. Um, okay, so JLS won, uh, came third in X Factor in, I think, 2011. So I think that year was 2013. No, 2009. Is it? Yeah, I think your math is all off there. Wow, I've got that really wrong. Sorry. Yeah, well, no points. Anyway. And so, I lived I lived through that time as well. Yeah, I know. I was 19 dancing that song in the, in the bars of Manchester University. In the club. On my own. <laughs> okay, last one. This is a year where the Bank of England rate was 3%. News of the week. The measure for the repeal of the Corn Laws propounded by Sir Robert Peel is before Parliament and the country. The North British Railway line opens, connecting Scotland and England for the first time. A mighty time. Right, name that interesting year. Wow, okay. So really think about it. A little bit before JLS, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, Pre J. Robert Peel. And corn laws, I think, and trains. Mm. Um, I, it's going to be, is it the 1800s? Yes. But I've no idea. This is a hundred year period. It could be anywhere. Take it a could stab be, in the dark. Take it could be literally anywhere. I didn't even know we had interest rates back then. Um, mm. I'm going to say 1821. Mm. It is. No. No, it isn't. Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? Imagine. Yeah, no, no. It's 1846. You're way off, mate. Anyway, you got half a point for that. So well done. <laughs> Not great, actually. No, that was good. Thank that was you. Good. Rebecca, what are these different interest rates in different years telling us? So there's different pressures on the economy. 
that basically means that the appropriate interest rate at different times is going to be very different. So in 1976, the government needed to reduce inflation and it was also trying to strengthen the pound. So another way that interest rates can influence the economy is through the exchange rate. And one of the reasons that they tried to have such a high interest rate is so that the pound would do well against other currencies. Whereas in 2009, the pressures were really different. Instead of trying to reduce inflation, we were trying really hard to stimulate the economy because we were immediately in the aftermath of the financial crash. So that's why the interest rates were so low then. Okay, so Rebecca, why is the interest rate so low now? Is that a bad sign? The reason it's so low is because the recession that we were in was so severe. So the central bank was trying to encourage a lot more spending by cutting the interest rates. Why it's still low now is because the economy is still weak. So maybe it's not really working. Possibly it's not working because whilst the monetary policy, so the interest rate policy, is one that's designed to boost spending, on the other hand, the government's running an austerity programme. So whilst on the one hand it's trying to encourage spending, it's not actually spending much itself. So that could be one reason why we're still experiencing very low growth despite the low interest rates. Also, we're facing a lot of uncertainty in the economy at the moment. That's certainly been compounded by the decision to leave the EU. And uncertainty tends to reduce spending and investment because people face uncertainty and firms face uncertainty about the future. So there's lots of other reasons in the economy and lots of other influences that are happening that are also dragging economic growth and economic activity down. And that all leads to perhaps the most important channel, which is about what people expect to happen. So if I don't expect the economy to improve, then even with really low interest rates, I might still decide not to spend my money and not to make investments. So all taken together, I think perhaps and probably the low interest rates will in the end help the economy to recover and stimulate demand and stimulate investment and growth. At the moment, there's lots of reasons why the rates are so low and staying so low. Who wins and who loses out of interest rates? Like when it's high, when it's low, who's, who wins and loses? Okay, so typically you think about savers as people that do well when interest rates are high because they get a better return on their savings, okay? So just looking at the statistics, it seems that financial wealth, which includes what people save, tends to be highest among people aged about 45 and then stays pretty constant until people are around 85, even though they're reducing their pension wealth over that time. So it looks like um, high interest rates are pretty good for people in middle age and older age. Borrowers, on the other hand, prefer lower rates because it basically means there's less to pay back. So then you start to think, well, who typically is a borrower? And people with mortgages, which accounts for a huge proportion of debt in the UK, are typically those aged between 35 and 54. Also people holding consumer debt. So that's people with credit debt and store cards, for example. Those people are typically the ones that are a bit younger, so aged between 25 and 44, for example. It's quite likely for a lot of people to be both a borrower and a saver. For example, lots of people are holding student loan debt and or mortgage debt, but also holding savings. Okay, Asia, I want to do a little experiment on you that is going to tell you something about interest rates. Now, I know you're way too cool and popular to ever want to watch a film with me. You've made that very clear on a number of occasions. But uh, please just humour me for the sake of this experiment. 
We're going to have a nice evening in together watching a film. Purely. It's just, it's just me and you. Yeah, just me and you. Right. I'll cook some food, have some candles. And then we're going to learn about monetary policy, as I do on all my dates. Now, we've got a choice of two films. Film one, A Separation. Winner of Best Film at the Berlin International Film Festival, an Iranian drama which tackles the emotional tribulations of family breakdown and Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Okay. Okay. Or film two, A Good Day to Die Hard. Nice. I'm on board. It's the fifth instalment of the franchise and, in my opinion, the hardest of all the Die films. New York City cop John McClane arrives in Moscow to track down his estranged son, Jack McClane, and is shocked to find out that his son is working undercover to protect a Russian government whistleblower. Can they put their differences aside to thwart a potentially disastrous crime? Wow. Okay. Okay. okay, okay so okay. let's imagine we're having our film date. Not date. Not, sorry, not date. No. Uh, just mates hanging out. Mm. We're having our mates, mates dates. Colleagues. Colleagues. Let's imagine we're going to be watching this film in a week's time. All right. We've got a week before the date. Which one do you fancy? Um, it's, if it's in a week... Let's watch a separation. I think I could, I'll have enough time to kind of like gear myself up for the emotional role. Because it sounds quite intense. Sounds pretty intense, but also like very interesting. Yeah, and we can have really deep, meaningful conversations afterwards. Oh, well. And just look into each other's eyes and oh, stuff. Okay. Okay. okay, what if we were watching the film tonight? Like t- like right now. We'd have to go, we'll just go watch it right now at my, at okay. my place. Oh, wow. Which one do you feel like watching? Okay, it's got to be a good day to die hard. I mean, just from that description, I, I would like to watch that immediately. It sounds incredible. It sounds really, really... I want to know if they can put the differences aside, and I don't know. Okay, that's interesting, because actually your response is exactly what I expected. Uh, let me explain. This kind of choice was the subject of a study done by a guy called Daniel Reed, uh, who's a professor of behavioural economics at Warwick Business School. He's been telling me about how all this worked. What I did in this study was look at people's choices between... Um, virtue movies, I called them highbrow movies, and vice movies, which I called lowbrow movies. Lowbrow movie was a movie that would be kind of fun to watch, but you kind of forgettable, you know, and you wouldn't really necessarily want to brag about having watched it. And a highbrow movie is a movie that perhaps was less fun to watch, but after you'd seen it, you'd want to tell everybody that you'd seen it and talk about how, how great it was. So it's a bit like if I watched Love Island, that would be Yeah, so be Love Island would be lowbrow and, and I wouldn't want to tell anyone about it. Yeah. well, keep, Just keep it to myself. Exactly. Exactly. Ashamed. <laughs> and so, and what people would do is they would choose a movie that they could watch that evening. And then they would choose a movie they could watch, say, two evenings later and then four evenings later. And okay. they had to watch them that evening. They had to return them the next day. Now, what I had predicted was that if there would be a delay between when you are going to watch the film and when you choose it, you'd want a highbrow film. And then there is the choice you make on that evening where you're going to watch something right now. And, what, and I expected that that would tend to be more of a lowbrow film. Mm-hmm. Right? And that is indeed the result. So is this a little bit like when I say I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow? I think it's exactly like it, actually. I've been to the you, gym tomorrow so many times. Yes, exactly. Or people say I'm going to quit smoking tomorrow, but today I'm going to... Yeah, just one you know, last day. One last cigarette or... I'll have this cake, but tomorrow I'm going to go on a diet. Um, tomorrow's just so far away, isn't it? It is. And you have more and more ambitious, you have these are ambitious plans for your later self, but for your current self, you just want to have immediate pleasures. You know? So what is it about the delay that makes people change their decision? Well, I, I think that the main thing is the engagement of emotions. 
that when things are delayed, they're not as vivid to our mind as when they're immediate. So, you know, an opportunity that's right in front of us, you know, perhaps a, a tempting cake, you know, we salivate, our stomachs rumble, and we, we want to have it. But if I think about a cake in a week, that's a more of an kind of abstract entity. Is there also an element of people undervalue the benefit from the virtuous decisions? It has to be the case that if they could get more pleasure from a virtuous choice than a vice choice, but they choose the vice choice instead of the virtuous one, then in some sense they're underweighting yes. the benefits they can get from it. So I would definitely say that that's true. Yeah, I know I should go to the gym. I know the benefits mm-hmm. of the gym, but yeah. I, don't, I don't do it. Yeah, exactly. So you know it, you can say it, but you don't do it. So that was Daniel Reed, and there are other studies that have found very similar results, both with films and in other contexts. Now, we basically have a tendency to think differently about what we want in the moment than when we think about our future self. He calls it the immediacy effect. I watched Mean Girls on Friday night, and I planned to do it. I planned it two days in advance. What does that say about my life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On my own? Okay. (laughs) So, uh, Rebecca, we're talking about interest rates. What on earth has this got to do with interest rates? There's a few ways, I think, that this ties in with our discussion about interest rates. And to get to them, I think we need to think about the reasons why we borrow. So one reason why we borrow is because we might want to even out how much we can buy over our lifetime. So we could borrow money when we're young in anticipation of having more money when we're older so we can pay ourselves back, as it were. Another reason is to invest. So if you decide to take a student loan, you're investing in your education and your career. And the third reason that we think about for why we choose to get credit and choose to borrow is this exact reason that Daniel Reed has been talking about, which is that we are inherently impatient. There's good evolutionary reasons why we might be impatient. We should take the food option that's available now because we might not be around to take the later option, even if it's better for us. But... The example that Daniel gave was about when the impatience could be seen as irrational. So the future self, the future you, would regret your previous choice. And that might be because, as he says, you're in the immediate future, you're thinking about the desires that you have right now, and you're discounting or underweighting what you're going to want in the future. So the way that this links up with credit and with interest rates, one easy way is when you think about high cost credit. So you can see lots of examples of people that take out very high cost short term credit for things like buying big TVs or going on expensive holidays. So is this like payday loans? Absolutely, yeah. Or high cost store credit, for example. So I might think, well, I really, really want this TV and these high interest rates that I'm going to have to pay for it, they're a problem for future me, right? So present me gets the TV, it gets the pleasure. Yeah, good deal Future for me, me has to pay. But future me is really getting screwed over in that deal. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Rebecca MacDonald from the University of Birmingham for filling our minds with interest rate-related wonder. So, boiling it all down, interest rates are a fee for borrowing that either you pay the bank or the bank pays you. They take into account the levels of risk involved and other factors such as inflation. Central banks use interest rates to control inflation and also to try and stimulate economic activity. Interest rates affect borrowers and savers differently, but a lot of us are actually both. And if you really want to send someone a message, coffins are the new envelopes. 
That's all from Economics with Subtitles. We are your everyday guide to economics and why you should care. Actually, I've got to say, I was really enjoying the Volker band. Can we play a bit more of that music? Really? Yeah. Oh, go on then. Economics with Subtitles was presented by Aisha Thomas-Smith and me, Steve Bougere. It was produced by Simon Mabin and Phoebe Keane. If you liked it, tell your mates, please. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, the podcast is finished. If you've still got time to fill and you want something to make you laugh, then give the Flip podcast a go. It's the home of box set comedy from BBC Radio 4. Get whole series at once from the likes of Matt Berry, Sarah Kendall and Joe Lysett. That's a whole series to binge listen every month before something new and equally great comes along. Subscribe to Flip wherever you get your podcasts.